This is a podcast from Kingdom People Church in Harare, Zimbabwe. For more details, please go to www.kingdompeoplechurch.org. Bring those together. How do we look at life completely and get to the truth? We're doing a number of topics. Ryan kicked us off so well last week with just an overall concept of dealing with cultural relevance and how we deal with that. Further on the series, we look at things like abortion. We look at things like dealing with widows and orphans. Look at all sorts of things. And for reasons best known to God and to Rob, he has tossed me a topic this morning, which I can pretty much guarantee if I do it right, I will annoy every single one of you. Because the issue of sexuality is vast. I would say there are probably 10 points here, each of which would do two sermons. So we're going to be going fairly quickly and not as deep as you might like me to. Or maybe not as deep as you're afraid I might. Father, we need your presence today. We need you to speak to our hearts. We need you to speak to our minds. We need you to speak to our bodies. We need you. You alone are worthy. Amen. Amen. Turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, I'm starting to read from verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which is out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that anyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed to the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So look carefully at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Before we deep leap into how evil the days are in which we are living, I think we need to start with the truth of where we are. Let us start with the truth of God. What does God 
think about six. First thing, it's his idea. Six was not created by the television industry, by the printed media, by your desires or what you heard behind the bike sheds at school. Six was created by God. He made it, it was his idea, and it is good. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, we read that God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And in chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, we read, The man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God created, in the beginning, men and women. He didn't just say, let's create the human race, and yeah, we'll see what happens, we'll see what works out. He had a plan. He set it up originally with us as two different kinds of people. His plan was good. And he had purpose in that. He said, be fruitful. Multiply. And he said, and Adam said, this is special. I like this. Let's call it woman. Because it's taken out of man. It's not the same as man. It just fits together. And a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast. As you think about our society and where we view sex, holding fast to one's wife is such a glorious, simple, and obvious thing in Genesis 2. And the man and his wife were naked, and nobody made a movie. Nobody got excited. Nobody made a million on HBO. They were not ashamed, because it was good. Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything he'd made, and behold, it was very good. Hebrews 13, verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. You see, God has a perfect plan. He wants us to experience sexuality the way he wants it to be done. He doesn't want the marriage bed defiled. He wants marriage to be held in honor. It's God's plan. From the beginning, he created man and woman, a binary complex. There are the two extremes. He wants it to be joyful. He wants it to be committed. Sex is designed for inside a committed covenant relationship. And I deliberately did not use the word marriage there. 
Because when I use the word marriage, you just thought of something that is probably not what God thought of. Nowhere in here does it say sex is reserved for those who have put on suits and white dresses. Our culture partially says that marriage involves suits and white dresses. Our culture partially says that a marriage includes cattle. God sees marriage as a committed, covenantal relationship between a man and a woman. In some cultures, that covenant and that commitment is arranged for you. In others, you do the work yourselves. What makes the marriage is not the legal certificate. It's not the great expense you spend. The covenant. I like weddings. Fu and I were at a lovely wedding yesterday. And as I sat there, partly with this message in my mind, it occurred to me that one of the reasons why marriage is so important and why weddings are so important particularly is because it makes you stop and think. Pida and Vincent, the couple who got married yesterday, they didn't exactly rush into yesterday. There was a lot of investment of time, energy, and thought to get there. It wasn't just, I like you, you like me, let's get on and get married. Since they first met in 2014, they've been walking towards this point. They've been working towards commitment. They've been working towards a point where they could, before God, commit to one another. As part of what Pida said to Vincent yesterday, she said, I know what God is doing in your life, and I'm honored to be your partner in it. That is commitment. That is not, we need to get together and have sex. She also said, you draw me closer to the cross. That's not, I'm in it for what I can get, but it's out of what we can go forward together. It's commitment, it's covenantal, and that is the context in which God gave sex. Bends most of our minds, I think, because we like to compartmentalize ourselves and say, this is my sex life, and this is my service to God. Ladies and gentlemen, your sex life is your service to God. It's a vital part of it. That's why he created it. He created all things for his glory, and you are called to glorify him with your sex. He created sex to be undefiled, to be fruitful, to be unashamed. He created it not to be restrictive and kill joy. He created it to be protective. Your sex life not only holds you together as a married couple and protects you from the outside world, but keeping it exclusively in your marriage helps tie that marriage together. He doesn't make it easy. But he is God and he is glorified in giving us the strength to cope with it and to cope with the things we discover in it. And the Lord God looked at all that he had made and behold, it was very good. We could close in prayer and go home. That is my message today. That God loves sex because he loves you and he is glorified in sex. 
But it gets more complicated than that because we live in a world with a whole bunch of other people who haven't necessarily seen the God who we worship. So what does the world say about sex? They say sex is good. Maybe not the same way as we think of good, but they think sex is good. We'll agree. Sex is good. Single people, by the way, just, just bear with us. Trust us on some of these things. You will not understand. But God has given us something good. The world says that sex is natural. It is. It's part of the basic core of creation. It's part of who we are. But it's not just sex is natural. Sex is also special. The world says that sex is natural insofar as, well, breathing is natural and digestion is natural. It's all part of being human. Not quite. I breathe every day. I digest every day. To be graphic, there are other parts of my bodily functions that occur every day. Sex is natural, but it's special. It has a special place in who we are. Sex occurs at certain seasons of life, not like breathing. I was breathing many years ago, and I'll be breathing hopefully for many years still to come. But sex was not with me for most of that time. It is special. It's special and part of that commitment in which we live when we are married people. You see, if sex was just like eating, we would handle it differently. When it comes to eating, I choose what I eat. I choose when I eat, where I eat, and I eat whenever I feel hungry. Sex is not like that. Sex is not something that I choose. Sex is something that I receive as a gift from God in the context of the relationship that he has given me. I don't choose my restaurant. He has given me an extremely precious, monogamous, for life marriage. I do not choose to have sex just when I'm hungry. Because it's part of the partnership, and we work together on that. I may have desires, I may have hungers, but they are brought under his authority within the context of what he has designed me to be. And my choice must always be in following his design and not mine. It's not my body, my desire, my choices. It's my body sacrificed to him, to his desire and his plan. Now, before we look at too much of exactly the way the world is getting something a little bit interesting, we need to look at some definitions because I think for most of us, we're already sitting there with our arms foldly folded and I'm hiding nice and securely behind the lectern because we're talking about sex and it's embarrassing and we don't actually stop and think, what are we talking about? I am not a sociologist, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a sexologist, I'm just a dude who likes stuff. I like sex as well. But Alan asked me not to talk too much about it and my wife will get embarrassed after a while. But anyway, we do need to separate a couple of definitions here to help us understand. Sex, sometimes called assigned sex, has to do with what the nurse saw when you were born. 
You look at a newborn baby, you can see if it's a little boy or a little girl because there are differences. Little girls don't have what little boys have, even at that age. Those of you who don't know that much, just still bear with us. Trust on these facts. That is your sex. And the world has come to refer to it as assigned sex because what they're saying is that the nurse at that stage assigns the sex to the baby and says, oh, Mrs. Jones, you've got a little girl. And is thereby saying, this is a little girl. See where the world's going. They're saying it's assigned. I don't like that. It's not assigned by the nurse. It is assigned by God nine months earlier. Your sex is who you are physically. Your physical characteristics are derived from your genetics, which is derived from your conception, which was handled by God. You were fearfully and wonderfully made like that. That is your sex. Your sexuality has to do with your desires, what you find sexually attractive, what you find sexually stimulating. I am male. In God's design, he has made me attracted to females. In our world, we have a smaller sector of the population who has variety on that. And we do have the concept of same-sex attraction. We have the concept of bisexual attraction. So we have to go back. And we have to say that sex is given by God for the context of a committed, covenantal, for-life, monogamous relationship. Therefore, if I am same-sex attracted, I am not in a covenantal relationship with the person I'm attracted to, because that is not part of God's plan. I did not just say, oh, he's wrong to feel like that, because I don't have the right to say that. I have the right to say, though, that just as I have hungers that are not appropriate, so too does he. That is called living to the glory of God. It's taking what you're feeling and saying, God, this is not your best. I'm not going there. We will come back to that as well. Gender. Sex. What bits you are given. Sexuality. What you feel. Gender. Who you think you are. I think I'm male. But it's possible I might feel inside me a little bit more female. I might have a more sort of softer, gentle side. I may wonder why I really can't abide soccer. A trivial example, but within the spectrum, we do have people who are really convinced that the body that they live in is not the body they belong in because they think they are a different gender to the gender which they actually are, to the sex which they actually are. See, it gets confusing, which is why they've given us different words, gender and sex. Your gender is predominantly and principally linked and determined by your genetics, via your hormones, and it therefore comes back to your actual sex, predominantly. There are a small portion of the world who are 
afflicted, to use the good spiritual word. It is a spiritual affliction. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, known in the trade as the DSM, published by the American Psychiatric Association, in their latest edition in 2013, DSM-5, they reclassified this whole area. You see, in DSM-4, we had what was referred to as genetic identity disorder, whereby if somebody is physically male, but they feel they're female, it was classified as a disorder. There was something wrong. They were disordered. 2013 with DSM-5, this was changed. DSM-5, and now you're therefore your standard for psychiatric practice worldwide, this is referred to as gender dysphoria, which could cause some of you to get nervous because we have just taken away the fact it's a disorder. It's now just dysphoria. Now, okay, what's a dysphoria? Dysphoria is a profound state of unease or general dissatisfaction with life. So what they're saying is folks who are in this condition, they are profoundly uneasy with who they are. Is this a bad thing? Was the DSM-4, DSM-5 change a bad idea? We basically said that person who has a gender identity within that doesn't agree with their physical body is no longer ill. They're just disturbed. I could answer that yes or no, but I'm going to go with yes. It is a good thing because it helps us to think about it. Those with gender dysphoria are not suffering from a disease. They are suffering from a spiritual affliction. They are suffering from the evil one corrupting God's gift. They are suffering from the devil coming and saying, you don't really feel like that. I'm not calling them evil. I'm calling them victims. They are attacked. And it's hard, really hard, because part of the devil's uh, technique is to blind their eyes so they do not realize what's happening. And that's why we're here, because we get the chance to look at that and play our part as God's children in the world. We live in a terminally broken world. Since the days of Adam, we've been afflicted. The devil continues to prowl around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So your sexuality, what sort of things you like, born that way or choice. Your gender, who you think you are, born that way or choice. Tricky one, you talk to the people who are actually afflicted. They didn't choose it. They live with it. And it's hard. There are those who live with it and really they don't mind living with it because it's, they've come to terms with it. To use the term, they are out. But there are many who are out and are struggling because although that's what they're feeling and they can come to terms with, well, this is who I feel I am. They also know in their inherent God-created soul that this is not right. This is an affliction. This is an attack. This is something which is hard. 
Satan can make someone dysphoric. And take away all the glory that would be given to God from them being happy with who they are. And when they take away the glory from an all-sufficient God, Satan wins. But Satan never wins. He has momentary victories along the way, but he is ultimately defeated. Our God is all-sufficient. He is sufficient for you. He is sufficient for me. He is sufficient in whatever it is that is afflicting you. So one of the joys of being here is I can see some lovely faces and I don't exactly know what's going on inside your heads. I see some stress on faces, that's good. You're probably thinking. But God is sufficient for whatever it is that's niggling you. Whatever part of your sex, sexuality, gender, is uncomfortable. God is sufficient. The answer ultimately lies in the individual seeing and savoring the incomparable all-sufficiency of a sovereign God who made them and knows exactly what they are feeling and who gave us another comforter who will be with us for all time. We don't do it alone. Now, let's be clear on this. It's very easy, not so much in our lovely little backwater third world part of, of Christianity, but certainly when you look at the bigger first world side, it's very easy to think that we have a major battle against liberalism and we have a major battle therefore against the LGBT community. We don't. We don't have a battle against the LGBTQ community. They are not the enemy. Our battle is not trying to eliminate sexual attraction. Our battle is not trying to eliminate gender dysphoria. Our battle in Ephesians 6.12 is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. Do not attack the victims. They are not the enemy. Don't think of the LGBTQ community Specifically, do not stop and think, well, look at them. Look at the way they live. At least I am not like them. Because you are. It may be that you can find nothing more repulsive than same-sex attraction. Maybe. It may be that you just have got no concept of what it would like, be like to be in a different gender from the one that you were created in. But that does not mean that you are not afflicted by the same enemy. The same enemy who has become so visible and vocal in the LGBTQ community is at work in your life. The LGBTQ community are not the enemy. They are important, yes. They're important for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because God loved them enough to die for them. Secondly, because they are vocal and they are visible and they are undermining the faith of many who are not strong to stand. But they are not our ultimate enemy. They are those who we must love, we must care for. And I'll come back to that just now. But ultimately, 
We have a much bigger enemy to deal with, much closer to home. You and I are tormented, tempted, trampled, and frequently defeated in the area of sexuality. That's why I dealt with the big ones first and just got them out of the way, because it's not about them. It comes down to us in the end. Sex is good, yes. Sex is God-given, yes. Sex is natural. But it is not for me to use and abuse it as I will. If I choose to say that sex is mine, it's my body, my choice, my desires, I'm going to fall into some really nasty areas. Ladies and gentlemen, how are your sexual fantasies? What do you watch for entertainment? How is your lust level? What do you read? How are you on romantic fiction? How is your porn? What are your views? Or even what are your practices concerning sex outside of marriage? Whether that's before marriage, or in parallel with marriage. As soon as we assume that it's my body, and because it's natural, I can do what I like with it, we are going to fall into sin just as abhorrent to a living God as anything that you can imagine coming from any of the worst TV shows you can imagine. And that includes Sky News, by the way. I wasn't going to include this one, but it just is so abhorrent, I have to talk about it. Last week on Sky News, there was an interview with a man who had just given birth to a baby. I say the word man because that's how he views himself. He may have been born as a little girl, but since he has become a man, he now thinks of himself as a man. He still has lady bits, and so he was able to give birth to a baby with his husband. This man, born a woman, is now technically, in terms of the world's definitions, a transsexual homosexual. My eyes did water when I heard that. Not with pain, not with physical pain, but emotional pain. These are people to sympathize with, just as we sympathize with one another when we look at how trapped we are in our sexual deviances. Again, sex is given as a gift for use inside the covenantal, committed relationship of marriage. Sex is not given for the benefit of television, or literature, or the internet. There is huge privilege and pleasure and joy and building up in marriage. But sex is not given for pleasure and self-gratification elsewhere. That is not what it's there for. All of us are victims of sexual attack. And all of us have potential daily to fall. You see, 
being same-sex attracted is no different to being opposite-sex attracted. It just says, I'm being tempted to use my sexuality outside of my marriage. If I see a good-looking woman who is not my wife, and there are no good-looking women apart from my wife, I just want to clarify that, but all due respect to ladies present, but if I see a good-looking woman who is not my wife, I am being tempted to use sexuality wrongly. Just as much as if I saw a good-looking man who is not my wife. Same-sex attraction is not the problem. Misplaced sexual attraction is the problem. If I feel that I want to be a woman because that's what I feel like inside, or if I feel that I don't want to take my responsibility as a man in my family, that's the same. The only difference is that there is no option of surgery if I don't want to help with the washing up. That sounds trivial. But ladies and gentlemen, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about using God's gift as it was given to us. Not to judge, but to daily come to God in humility and fear and say, I'm missing up. I need your help. The passage which we started with, Ephesians 5, touches so heavily on the whole issue of sexual immorality. And it does really speak to how we should be living. Ephesians 5 verse 3 Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. NIV, not even a hint. We shouldn't even have to talk about sexual immorality. It's good to do so, yes. It's good to bring it into the open. It's good to say, this is where we're struggling. This is where we need help. This is where we need to pray for one another because only God can save us. But it must not even be named among you. Paul's pretty clear on this. This is not something just to, ah, it's Sunday night, what's on TV? My wife didn't want me to mention the particular Sunday night show, so I won't mention it. But if you know what show I'm talking about, you know why I'm talking about it. It's making a fortune. Why? Yeah, devil's good at marketing too. Not even a hint. This is an incredibly high standard. Interesting to note here in this verse that Paul links sexual immorality to covetousness. To wanting something that is not mine. That's what sexual immorality is. If she, he, it, or they are not my wife, it's not mine. It is immoral of me to want it. Ephesians 5 verse 5. Anybody who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Sexual immorality includes our thoughts and our speech. And sexual immorality is covetous, desiring what's not mine. And also now, sexual immorality is adultery. Tell me, why do we spend so much time thinking about sex? 
Why do we think that sex is going to make the difference in our lives? Why do we think that sex is the sovereign God of, which, who has the solution to all of our problems? Why do we put this remarkable gift as an idol? Paul nails it in verse 5 here. It is idolatry. It's not just, shucks, I wish I hadn't done that again. Oh, and by the way, just because your idol is painted a bit nicer than the other guy's idol and looks a little bit more like the original design doesn't mean it's a better idol. It's still an idol. Sexual immorality is also terminal. It's not just short-term gratification. Anybody who is sexually immoral or impure has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. It doesn't just burn you now. It's big. While the world watches the various liberal debates going on, you and I and billions of others are worshipping an idol of sexual impurity instead of worshipping the living God. It's tough territory. Verse 11 of this chapter, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. It's not try hard. Live well, uh, change the TV channel, uh, be accountable to at least two other people, or be honest with each other, or put some good software on your computer, or don't read that book. It's not try hard, it's take no part. We are good at saying, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying. Or I've got a new way of countering this, and cold showers... Zessa helps with that, I know, but it's not try hard. It's take no part. Paul was tough. He goes hardball here. Take no part. All of these other tools are good. They're useful. I'm not saying don't turn off the TV and don't have good protection software on your computer. I'm saying that's not the answer. It helps, but, have, but take no part. It's absolute. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but in verse 15, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. You see, Paul is not messing around here, and neither should we. We need to regard our sexuality with absolute seriousness. Now, single people, I just want to say here that if I am being too serious, don't believe me. It is a wonderful gift. It is. But it's dangerous if not used properly. So what should our response be? What should we as Christians and as the church be doing? How do we cope with the real affliction that we face from the devil in the area of sexuality? First thing. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee. Do not turn around, turn your back and stand firm. Flee. Do not make sure that you've got a good firm stand so that you can see what the devil's throwing at you and you can therefore get the experience to help you to help other people. Flee. Flee youthful passions. 
Pursue righteousness. Sexual attack is not just hard to deal with. Sexual attack is not just tough. Sexual attack is not impossible to defeat. But it's lethal. Not something to be messed with. Flee. Number two, be humble. Be humble enough to say, I am vulnerable. Admit who you are. Don't judge other people by their struggles. Work with your own. Be humble enough to admit that you have got a dirty great log in your eye as well. Come before God in fear and trembling and confess that it's you. It's you who need his protection and his power. Flee. Be humble. Number three, don't judge. But love and welcome. There are a couple of ladies in this town who, yeah, they mean a lot to me. I've known particularly the, the one of them for many, many years. We'll use the legal term because that's the way it is in this context. They were married in South Africa because it's not legal to be married in Zimbabwean law. But they, because of their beliefs that God is God, would love to be involved in a church. And they went to a number of churches in Harare and said, this is who we are. We're a lesbian couple. What does the church think? And the responses they received ranged from almost hate to we don't know how to deal with this. I may be wrong. I pray I am. But so far as I know, they are not going to church. Church, we're getting it wrong if we are doing something which stops sinners coming to God. 1 Peter 4 verse 8 says, Love one another deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. I wonder if we love deeply enough, it'll cover over the sins in my life. Just as much as it covers over the sins in other people's lives. We need to love not judge. We need to welcome. We need to recognize who we are so that we can recognize who they are and say, come with us. We're all walking out of darkness into light. We need to walk together. You see, Jesus, I know, he ate with prostitutes. He let a prostitute wash his feet. If Mary was that comfortable with Jesus, why are lesbians not comfortable with us? Maybe we judge too soon. Maybe we don't love as he loves, but we need to love. We need to love unconditionally as he loves us. Fourthly, we need to be constant. We need to be strong. We need to stand. For some, the affliction is severe. It is chronic. And it appears not to be going away. I think for all of us, there are parts of our lives we know that's who we are. And we need to be strong. I am very grateful that some of the things we've spoken about today are things that I have no personal experience of. 
But I know that I am a recovering porn addict. I know that I have to be strong daily, constantly. I don't know what your issues are, but it has to be done. Constancy is critical. Sam Albury is a Anglican curate in England who says with a lot of pain, but real honesty, that he has been same-sex attracted for as far back as he can remember. But he knows that's not God's way. And God is glorified in his sexuality by Sam being celibate. What affliction you're under is the tool that God is using for his glory. The devil gave it to you to try and undermine it, to undermine you. Your constancy shows the power of God in your life and gives glory to God. And I love it when the devil gets kicked with his own boots. It's a hard battle. I'm not worried whether your issue is gender dysphoria, same-sex attraction, pornography, dirty jokes, adultery. I don't really care what specific it is, but constancy, standing firm, standing with the belt of truth fastened around your waist. Because the truth is that God created sex good, and he wants it to be so. And then finally, our tool must be prayer. We serve a God of miracles. Nothing that we face in the area of sexuality, nothing that society would tell us is unavoidable, nothing of that needs to defeat us. If we moved on into Ephesians 6 and the whole issue of the armor of God, we see that we are given the armor to stand firm. And having done all to stand, because that is the God who we serve and he wants us to stand. For some, as we stand and as we pray, God will bring remarkable healing. Again, another name to throw into the pot for those of you who are going to go back and do some extra reading. Go look for Rosaria Butterfield. Radical, militant lesbian. She was a tenured uh, professor in, in an American university, militantly on the whole uh, LGBT uh, agenda, until a Christian loved her, had her in his house, and with his wife, they fed her, they talked to her, they didn't thrust the Bible down the throat, they loved her. She went through the Bible twice trying to prove it was wrong, and they loved her, and they answered her questions. Does she still struggle? I don't know. I do know that she is in a monogamous heterosexual marriage with two lovely kids. I do know that she counsels those who are struggling throughout the LGBT community. And because she's been there, they respect her. Prayer works. Not all of us will be liberated. Some of us will fight through to the end. Some of us, this is our thought in the flesh. And we asked often, do not give up. 
He gives strength. He gives holiness. He opens our eyes to see his glory. He makes it worth the pain for us to stand firm. So then, walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed to light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible to it become, for anything that becomes visible is light. And look carefully how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. So what can we pray for you today? First thing you have to pray for yourself. For some, what God is saying to you this morning involves the word sorry. You've taken something valuable, you've used it, and are continuing to use it wrongly. Sorry is a good place to start. For others, the word is help. Because you're in way out of your depth. The devil has convinced you that he's got you. God's got you. For others, the word is equip. Some of you, God is equipping to work with those who are suffering. Commando troops need training. They need support. They need provisioning. You need prayer too. You need us around you to cover your back. Father God, we pray that your word will bear fruit this morning. We cannot thank you enough for your goodness to us. We cannot thank you enough for your desire to be glorified in us and trusting us with something so, so precious. Lord, we've got it wrong. We've got it wrong so often, but you are so right. We come to you again, Lord, and say, let our hearts be changed and renewed. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your power, greater than anything the enemy thinks he can throw at us. You have been listening to a podcast from Kingdom People Church in Harare. For more details, please go to www.kingdompeoplechurch.org.